All right, well, week three in our journey through the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. And so if you have a Bible, Nehemiah chapter 2, 17 is where we are today. Nehemiah chapter 2, 17 through all of chapter 3. That's our scripture this morning. So go ahead and turn there. We do have Bibles available in the seats. If you don't have a Bible of your own, you can also use your iPhone, your iPad, whatever you have. Uh, Just get a copy of God's Word in front of you. We also have it on the screen. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word back at home, uh, take one of these uh, paperback Bibles home, and that's our gift to you. would be really glad for you to have that. So Nehemiah 2, 17 is where we're going to be. Uh, today we're talking about neighborhoods, talking about neighborhoods. So it should be a lot of fun, and so I figured a good way to start it out, we'll just give you a little quiz uh, about the MBTA. So let's, let's have a little quiz about the T, see how you're doing here, your understanding of Boston culture and neighborhoods. And so do you guys know the colors of the T lines actually have significance? They do. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a, a pop quiz here. First one is this, the red line. Why is it red? Anybody? You got it? Harvard. Okay, crimson red. Good. How about the, uh, the blue line is blue because of the harbor? It goes up under the harbor. All right, the green line. This will be a trick question. Green line. Is gre- yes, the greenery. And people think Fenway, but it's, it's green because of the emerald necklace. She doesn't even live here originally. I mean, that's, she's putting the Bostonians to shame. We just do life. Like, that's good. Good work. Okay, the orange line. This will trick you. What you got for the orange line? What's, what's orange, right? Orange Street, South Washington Street, that's where it used to run, so Orange Street. There we go. So now you feel smarter, and you're, uh, you're more apt and more equipped with your Boston knowledge, but we're talking neighborhoods today. So to catch us up to speed as to, to where we've been with the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is a man, he's not a pastor, he's not a priest, he's not a, a religious professional, he's just a man working a job in Susa. Susa is the capital city of the Persian Empire. It's the major world power of the day. And Nehemiah is working specifically for the king of Persia as the cupbearer. He's the guy who brings wine before the king. And if someone were to poison the wine, Nehemiah gets the privilege of taste testing. And if he dies, the king's not going to drink it. But if he lives, the king will drink it. So it's kind of a funky little cush job that he has. He gets to drink a lot of wine and go to all the parties. But he could always die. And so that's Nehemiah's gig. And Nehemiah has... uh, received news in Susa. Some friends, his brother and some friends came to Susa and delivered to him news that Jerusalem, his city, his city of his ancestors, Jerusalem is just in complete disarray, that the walls have been torn down, completely burned with fire, the gates, uh, leaving it open and vulnerable to enemy attack. It's just complete anarchy in the land. But this is a 141-year-old situation that Nehemiah has been born into, and now it's brought to his attention in Susa. So he's already known about this situation uh, in Jerusalem, but God the Holy Spirit has delivered this news to him in a new way, in a fresh way, where his heart breaks for his city and his heart breaks for his people. And we've been saying all along that that's the kind of heart that we want, where it's easy just to get cold to the, the spiritual situation of Boston, but we want to be at a place where, like Nehemiah, our heart breaks for our city, and we don't just drive over Metropolitan Hill and see the skyline and say, yep, that's Boston, but we can actually see it and be moved with compassion and have love for our city like Nehemiah. Nehemiah weeps over Jerusalem, and as we kind of trace the scriptures, we see that he weeps for three to four months over Jerusalem. During this season, we saw that he has prayed like crazy, he has fasted, and while praying, he has also planned, so that when the king gives him the opportunity to, to share why he's sad, he gets to say, here's why I'm sad, and I have some plans. Would you bless these 
plans. And so he has planned as to how to rebuild the walls and how to restore Jerusalem. He wanted to see Jerusalem again become the city of God that God wanted it to be. This model faith community to the world. A city that would be completely focused in on the Lord. He's their center of, of their everything. And so our project here in Boston, is really not much different than their project uh, for Jerusalem. That we too are building a faith community. That we too are building a church, a family, a community within the, the city. And our heart is to see our city redeemed and restored and renewed and refocused into right relationship with the Lord Jesus. Chapter 2 rolls around. The king notices as Nehemiah walks into his job to bring wine before the king that Nehemiah is looking sad. God gives him compassion for Nehemiah, for the situation. And God grants uh, Nehemiah, through the king, permission to go west into Jerusalem and to lead this building project. He would eventually become governor of sorts over Jerusalem. And this is just a tremendous, massive, crazy answer to prayer. In our planting of this church, we have seen tremendous, massive, crazy answers to prayer. And this is one of those for them. The king had previously issued an edict, a decree, that there will be no rebuilding whatsoever. But by God's providence, he flip-flops on his foreign policy and says, okay, I'm going to let you rebuild in the city. Because listen, nothing can thwart God's plans. And so we have a lot of hope as we read just the, the history here. We find a lot of hope here. On top of this crazy permission that the king has now granted, that you can go back and you can rebuild the city. On top of this, he answers other kinds of prayers. He gives Nehemiah, the king, gives Nehemiah a royal hall pass that he can come to and from uh, Jerusalem and Susa and, and pass along the way through the, the Persian Empire with letters from the king and just say, nope, king's cool with this. King's cool with this. King's cool with this. I got my hall pass right here. It's all good. The king also provides lumber for this project from the king's uh, forest. And so now he has lumber to reinforce the walls and build the temple. It's, a, it's an amazing opportunity. Also, on top of this, the king provides transportation and protection. So he says, you can have my, some of my officers, my horsemen. We're going to get you there. It's, a, it's quite a journey from Susa to Jerusalem. But he took care of that. I, I went on a trip to El Salvador one time. We had the privilege to sit down and meet with uh, one of five governors of El Salvador. And um, we, we just started talking to her, and I got the chance to kind of share Christ with her and share the scriptures with her. And she said, uh, you know, is there anything that you need? And we said, well, actually, yeah, we, there's this island off the coast that we've just, we would really love to, to go to and to, to, to share with. And uh, she said, here's what I'll do. I'll provide you some of my officers. And we went with some military men on their boats, these little boats, and got out to the island. They stood there and kind of made sure we were taken care of. That's similar to what Nehemiah has. God's hand is on him. God's favor is on him in this, this rebuilding project. And we see good things start to come about. Now, today we began to see movement. I mean, real movement start to take place in this building project. This is when it gets really, really exciting. I remember when we built our house uh, back in uh, central Massachusetts. We sold it a few years ago, but I remember after when we were building it, the, the process was, it, it was fun. You know, we were, there was a, a season where we were drawing up the plans and downloading plans offline and printing them and cutting and pasting and just putting together our little dream blueprint and then bringing it to the architect who said, no, you can't do that. You need this. But it was just, it was so fun just building that. I remember 
we got approved for a mortgage, and that was a, a huge deal for us at the time. We found the piece of property in our price range that we could set our house on, and we could envision getting the house on the hill and twisting it the right way so that the sun hit it right. It was just so fun. But by far, the most exciting season in that journey of building a house was when the, the bulldozer went on the property, the link belt went on the property, trees started to be cleared, a hole was dug, foundation, and then the building started to rise. I mean, it was just the most exciting time because you could start to see it coming together. And now that's kind of where we're at right now. It's an exciting time with Nehemiah. You can start to see God's provision, not just kind of in the, in the sky, but you actually tangibly can see things start to rise. This is where they find themselves today. Nehemiah has prayed and he has planned he's drawn up blueprints and god has pulled the permits god has provided the mortgage through king artaxerxes it is time to build so read with me nehemiah 2 17 through 20 it says then i said to them this is his journal of sorts then i said to them you see the trouble we are in how jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned come let us build the wall of jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. And so they strengthened their hands for the good work. But Sambalot the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Jeshem the Arab heard of it. They jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. So Nehemiah has been silent about this except to the king and a few leaders. And now he starts to speak to everyone involved in the project. And he points out the trouble that they're in. Now, I love this. This this is just a really great leadership example. Some of you are leaders in your various careers. Some of you are leaders in, in family. There's nothing like just sitting down and having a face-to-face moment with the people that you lead, right? We can do emails, we can do phone calls, we can, you know, try to Skype and just see them face, but there's nothing like sitting down and just having a heart-to-heart, here's the vision, here's where we're going, and that's what Nehemiah does. He says, we're in trouble. You know the condition of Jerusalem. It's a mess. He says, but let me show you something. God's favor is upon us talks about his prayers he talks about the plans and about how god has blessed with the king so he says so what do you think guys let's do it let's build and they say we're in let us arise and 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 build now here's what's blaringly evident here in chapter two and all throughout chapter three and that is this this is huge that god loves to use a plural people to accomplish a singular mission god loves to use a plural people to accomplish a singular mission. That God's mission is most commonly worked out through history with a plurality of people. Notice the the plural personal pronouns here, beginning in verse 17. Just look, and we'll just kind of trace them. We've got we, us, we, us, 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 we, his servants, will arise and build. God loves to use a plurality of people for his singular mission. Now, Now, I must be very careful here, though. I don't want you to think that he can't move without us. Like, he, this whole project just depends on us. He needs me. He needs, he, you gotta, see, a lot of preachers will preach that way. Come on, God can't do it. He needs you. You gotta enlist. No, that's not it at all. Acts chapter 17, 25, Paul's standing on Mars Hill, the Areopagus, 
And he says to the people, our God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. So it's not, hey, he doesn't need you. Don't worry about it. But it's also not, come on, please, we need you. No, you get to be a part of what God's doing. You get to look back at this building that's going to be built. It's going to be built with or without you, but this time you get to say, I was a part of that. Your name gets to be listed in chapter 3 as we will see. And so we, us, we, us, 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 we. Historically, though God doesn't need us, he loves to use human agents to accomplish his plans. One, because when he uses weak people, it just shows how great he is. And two, because he's gracious enough to allow us just to experience the power of God flowing through us. I mean, what a blessing that he, he allows us to be a part of it and to experience him doing amazing things. How might this look in our own lives, in your life? We're about rebuilding our city to honor God. We're about building our faith community. God wants those personal pronouns, us, we, us, 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 we, his servants, will arise and build. He wants us to be those personal pronouns. And God's intention to use a plurality of people is seen all throughout the scripture. So think about Genesis chapter 1. We go back here all the time because these early Early chapters of Scripture prior to the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3, they're so foundational. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God says, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. So our God, who is triune, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, creates mankind in his image and in his likeness. Male and female, he created them, it says. And he leaves us with a mission right there. He says, here's the mission. Be fruitful and multiply. Here's the problem. You can't do that alone. I mean, I don't need to talk birds and the bees here, but you can't do that. This must be fulfilled in plurality with people. And so, just as God would accomplish his mission on this earth via his triune nature, so we must accomplish the mission via plurality. So God the Father sends God the Son. He lives out the mission, lives perfectly, and dies a sinner's death, though he was sinless. And then he ascends and he leaves us the Holy Spirit. So he sends the Holy Spirit. You see how all three persons in the Trinity are involved in his mission? And so if we're made, Genesis 1.26, in that image and after that likeness, then we are to operate under that example that we must work in plurality, that we must work together. We're made to live out our faith together, not just kind of an isolated faith. It's the case throughout all of redemptive history. So Genesis chapter 1, we've got a marriage, and a family is born, plural. Genesis chapter 12, promise to Abraham that you will be a great nation, plural. Mark chapter 3, a team of apostles, not one pope, plural, right? Mark chapter 16, Christ says, I will build my church, assembly, plural. Acts and, and through the epistles, Paul appoints a plurality of elders, Right? So churches are led by a plurality, not just one guy who can call the shots and get the church in a lot of trouble, come heretics, become a cult, move down to Waco, Texas, and drink Kool-Aid. That's, no, it's a plurality. There's, there's covering in that. Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the church is called a body with many parts who all serve together, work together to accomplish the overall mission. It's plural, plural. That's how God has designed us because we're made in his image and in his likeness. God loves to use a plural people to accomplish his singular mission. And so they say, let us 
us arise and build. Let us arise and build. And let us, Charles River Church, a plural people, arise and build a singular mission. It's us rallying around the mission. What's the mission? The mission is build the kingdom of God. And we do so one citizen at a time. We make disciples. We're going to make disciples. And we're continuing to make disciples. We're going to make disciples. And it just snowballs. And notice how Nehemiah invites them into this mission. Look at verse 17. Verse 17, he reminds them of the trouble. He calls them, let's join forces. Let's build. Look now at verse 18. He says, and I told them of the hand of my God. That phrase is repeated numerous times throughout the book of Nehemiah. The hand of my God. Not, hey, look what I have done. Look how smooth I was with the king. Look how hard I prayed and I moved the hand of God. No, the hand of my God has been upon me for good. And also the words of the king that spoke to me. See what he did there? Here's what Nehemiah did. This is a great leadership practice for your faith. He shows them that God is already in this. That God is already in this. And Nehemiah, again, frequently uses this phrase, the hand of my God has been upon me. God is already moving. I mean, the last thing that we want to do, right, is invest ourselves in something that God's not a part of. Right? I want to like, give myself to something that God's not a part of. That's why that's one reason that we're frequently bringing before you examples of how God is moving give you stories often about how God is moving because we're calling you to invest your life, your skills, your dollars, your time, your heart, your sweat into the mission of Christ through his church. And you want to know that this is a reputable investment, right? Or am I just kind of throwing my life currency to the wind? Am I investing in Facebook stock here while it plummets? Actually, it's doing good as of late. But you want to know, what, what am I investing in? And Nehemiah says, you're not buying into something that's dying. This is not me standing before you and saying, we're not going to make it unless you do this. He's saying, listen, God is clearly in this. You can get on board this train that's moving, or you can just not be a part of it. This week in our church, two more people gave their lives to Christ. It makes 45 people giving their lives to Christ in the short history of this church. Why? Because God's in it. Because God's in it, in a powerful book called Experiencing God. It's, it's a pretty old book, uh, a few decades old, but um, it was powerful back in, I mean, in the 90s, everybody was reading it, but it's still just as powerful. And this guy, Henry Blackaby, had a really simple message, and his message in the book was this. Find out where God's moving and join him there. Find out where God's moving and join him there. God is moving. The king has paved the way. And Nehemiah is saying, you want to get on board? You can, you can get on board. This is going to be awesome. It's calling God's people to, to jump on where God's moving. And as I often do, I'm going to stand up here again today and say, listen, God is moving in Boston. Not just us, all over Boston. I'm just amazed at what God's doing in Boston. He's moving. And God is moving in our faith community as well. Don't miss out. Notice again verse 19. Again, we see Sambalat and we see so, Tobiah opposing them. This time they have recruited some help. Now they've got Geshem, the Arab. And we're going to spend more time on opposition next week, chapter 4. But this opposition is just further evidence. God is moving. The enemy doesn't need to attack if he's not threatened, but he's threatened, right? And so there's opposition there. 
And yet, we can survive opposition when we have people around us, right? Ecclesiastes 4, read through that. Two are better than one. If one falls down, what's it going to do without another? Four to three strands is not quickly broken, right? Do it together, you can face opposition. If it were Nehemiah alone, it would have been unbelievably challenging. But the opposition is a sign. God is moving. And the opposition cannot stop God's people. Look at verse 20. Nehemiah replies on behalf of God's people, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build. Doesn't that sound a lot like when Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it? You see how the Old Testament, as we said from the very beginning of this series, the Old Testament fits nicely right in with the New Testament? This is not like an afterthought, an additional religion. No, this is God's plan throughout all of history, from the Old Testament to the very end. He knows what he's doing, beautifully overlapping, beautiful imagery, Christology, it's just amazing. Now, chapter 3, we get a lot of detail on the people, we get a lot of detail on the project. Let's think for a minute about the project before them, building here. They are building a massive wall around the city so that God's people could thrive, so that God's church the temple would be reestablished so that God would then be worshipped again there, that his name would be made famous among the nations. So picture what is in front of them. They say, we're going to do it. Picture what's in, in front of them. Here's a, here's a picture of what a gate would have looked like. Let me show you this picture. This is what a gate would have looked like. This is from the inside looking out. And this is one of 12 gates in Nehemiah we get 10, and these gates were dispersed evenly around the walls. And so there's 12 gates for Jerusalem, and then the wall in circumference would have been one to two and a half miles around the city. This is what's in front of them. We're building this. 15 to 20 feet high, three to four feet wide, no cranes, no forklifts, no modern machinery. They're doing this by hand, right? And the rubble that's there. They've got to deal with the rubble as well. It's just, it's just God's people united on God's mission with a massive undertaking. This is their version of our big dig. I mean, this is a big, stinking, expensive, crazy deal. Except they're going to do it by hand. <laughs> and for us, we have a massive undertaking in Boston today to rebuild the city, to be a part of what God's doing and to see faith community rise up. It's a massive, massive undertaking. It requires a lot of work. Notice that when Nehemiah in chapter 2 paints the project and he says, this is work. This is work, right? So the apostle Paul says, you're to fight the good fight, not dance the good dance, right? I mean, this is hard, right? You got something hard in front of you and it's, it's, it's work so that they can become again the city on a hill, the hope of the world, picture of what it would look like when a people center themselves on the Lord. So they say, let us arise and build these walls. Now, chapter 3, here's what we have. We have a list of names, leaders, and people who worked on the wall. We get their uh, designated locations. We're centered off of the gates. So they start at the gates, they work their way out, and these gates would be more or less uh, like entrances into various neighborhoods right and so 
Uh, I was at a Rosendale community meeting, and they were dreaming up some potential cool things that they could do to spruce up the neighborhood, and the guy comes up, and he has a proposal that this bridge right here at the commuter rail, that they're going to put these bright-colored LED lights, so you come in, and it's like strobe light coming into Rosendale, like Times Square, you know? And, uh, and that was the dream, and it, it sounds really cool. Listen, these are entrances into the, the neighborhoods, and yet the gates were, what were they? They were burned by fire, right? They're, they're burned by fire, so they certainly weren't welcoming anymore. They, they certainly weren't this great entrance into, come on into our city. The, they're burned by fire, symbolic of a, a warm welcome into God's kingdom. No, there's, there's not that. Symbolic of a warm welcome into a relationship with Jesus. It's, it's not that. I mean, we have the best news of all time. We must warmly welcome people into our city on a hill. That's why we even just practically pay close attention to how we're going to greet our guests when they come in. They're going to get a gift. We're going to care for them. We're going to have greeters. We're going to love on them. We want to warmly welcome them into the best news. We want to reflect that we have some amazing, amazing news here. We're so glad you're here, right? That's, that's what a gate says, entrance into a various neighborhood. But they have been burned and destroyed. And as you read through chapter 3, we learn a lot about Nehemiah's strategy, don't we? And here's what we see. We, we see that they're just going to build one gate at a time. We're just going to kind of bite off one gate at a time, one neighborhood at a time. Right? And that's how you do it. That's how you do it. So for us, when we really felt called to, to plant a church in Boston and move an hour east into the city from our little home that we had built in central Massachusetts, we quickly adopted Nehemiah's strategy. We could have said, we're going to start a church for Boston. <laughs> and that's what we said. And then we quickly learned, whoa, that's, that's a big city. What are we going to do? And so we said, okay, it's not just Boston. We're not just going to find any old building in the city and hang up a sign and start preaching and just go at it that way. No, we found our gate, right? We found our neighborhood, our, our entrance into the city. And so I took a map. I had this map, and Becky remembers this map really, really well. It's just the map. And uh, we took the map, and, and we just walked through the neighborhoods, prayed through the neighborhoods, just breathe in the culture of various neighborhoods all throughout the city. I started to get on the phone and call up pastors and guys who had planted church, whoever I could find. Hey, you want to meet? Let's get together. And I would just sit down with guys and talk and ask questions. I don't want to come in as this young gun who knew everything and I'm going to turn the city around. You guys have been doing this for a long time. What can I learn from you? I met with different guys and pastors and, and just learned. There was a wave of planting, I think it was like in the 70s, and there's a newer wave of churches starting in this past decade. And so I wanted to meet with the older guys and the younger guys and everybody in between. I started going online and looking up churches and listening to sermons, downloading statements of faith. They were preaching the gospel and opening the Bible. We didn't have to agree on everything. We're going to be unified. If they were just preaching the gospel and opening the Bible, check on the map, check on the map, check on the map, check on the map. And it was, it was a really exciting season, but I was, where's our gate? God, where's our gate? Where's our entrance? Kind of like Nehemiah, if you go into early chapter 2, he hops on his horse and he just explores the gates and he does his research, looks at every nook and cranny of the city. He gets this one point, it's like, I, if I was still sitting on my horse, I couldn't even fit under here, so I had to hop off. And, I mean, he's really getting into the innards of the, the, the city here. It's, a, it's an amazing thing, and that's what we really felt like we needed to do. And I remember the day that I found the Parkway region. Rosendale, West Roxbury. It was so, so cool for me. I'd come out to the city as I did many times. At that point, my previous church I was ministering at was allowing me to come and just spend a day, a week in the city while still ministering out there. 
And I'd come in, and this time I brought Isaiah, and so I had this little photo journal of sorts that I took, just snapshots of my phone of, of Isaiah in the city and different spots. And so I can re- remember it really well. And I remember there's a picture of him at a beach in Southie, and then the next picture is him sitting at Starbucks West Roxbury. And uh, I was taken back when I found this area. I called my wife and I said, the parkway, the parkway of Boston, it might be it. It might be the, it, it's not Quincy Market. It's, it's not Harvard Square. It's not Copley Square. It's not Huntington Ave with just college students and then becomes a ghost town in the school year. It's not the South End. It's it feels like real Boston, Becky. I, I was so excited. This is real Boston. Look, there were political banners all over this neighborhood. These people might actually vote. <laughs> they care. <laughs> I was so excited. And I was just determined, if we're going to change this city, we're going to change this city with the people of the Parkway, Bostonians. It wasn't sexy Boston. It was gritty Boston. You know, just Boston. I was so excited. And so we were praying, got excited about this area. And first thing we were looking for was just a really strategic location in the city to help us to reach the city. Other thing we were praying for that the Parkway region had was we were praying for an apartment complex that we could just adopt and love on and grow with. And Washington Beach was right there under construction. It was, it was, it was so cool. The other thing we prayed for is that we wanted to be where there was a huge void. It's a real need for churches. And you can look all over Boston and do this. Close your eyes. Put your finger on the map. They need a church there. They need a church there. But we wanted to find, okay, where's just the the greatest void in the city? And we quickly saw this neighborhood of 70,000 people. I mean, just a a real need for gospel preaching churches. Just kind of, you know, gritty neighborhood. Not walking through the south end and saying, I would love to live there. You're saying, it's a great spot to raise a family. It's a great spot to plant roots. And these seem to be real Bostonians, right? This is, this is awesome. So that's a little taste of our strategy. Nehemiah had a strategy. So we're going after the gates. We're going to work our way out. And today, my family would not want to live anywhere else in the world than right here in these neighborhoods. And like Nehemiah, we could have had a really generic, broad approach. We're going after Boston. But instead, we say, we're going to take one neighborhood at a time, starting with West Roxbury and Rosendale. Okay, maybe now we'll go on to Brookline, and then we moved on, and we're going to get some students up on Huntington Ave. We're going to get the artists in Jamaica Plain. We're going to get the hipsters in the South End. You know, we're going to get more apartment complexes, and we're going to grow that way. That's how it worked for Nehemiah. Take this neighborhood, take this neighborhood, you take your school, you take your condo association, you take your apartment complex, we just, that's how it works. And it grows, and you rebuild. One neighborhood at a time. Last night I had the privilege to officiate the wedding of Annie Cobb and Mark Ebert uh, from Southie. Some of you guys know them well from our church. I remember the day when both of them gave their lives to Christ. Uh, Annie's father had just passed away. Uh, suddenly he was running heart disease, and passed away. Week one, she walks in with him. And they come to church, her, her boyfriend, Mark. And in the middle of my sermon, ran out crying. I said, what did I do? What did I say? I must have ticked her off. Man, this is not good. Later found out on the grass out there, she gave her life to Christ. The next week, her and Mark come back. Same deal. In the middle of my sermon, he runs out crying. I'm like, 
I did it again. <laughs> what did I say? Found out on the grass, gave his life to Christ. They get engaged. They want to honor the Lord with their relationship. They start growing in the Lord. They're baptized here. They start taking really big steps of faith. They start telling me about their heart to, to, to share Jesus with Southie. It's just so cool how they dream of having one of these connection groups at their place someday. And so last night, beautiful wedding. And let me tell you, there was this one girl who sang at the wedding. Gorgeous. My wife. Anyhow, you guys are getting, you guys are getting nervous. Like. <laughs> I was reminded again last night about the strategic significance of assigning people to neighborhoods. Guess who was at the wedding? Lots of people from Southie, right? Lots of people from Southie. And I remember the rehearsal dinner Friday night, Mark and Annie came up to me and they said, we've just been praying that flowing out of the wedding, we would see people just connected to our church family. That's so cool. That's awesome. That's really, that's really cool. And so last night at the wedding, I just had lots of people coming up to me and saying, Mark and Annie talk about the church all the time. They just talk about the church all the time. They've invited me to church like crazy. I keep saying no, and they're just not going to let me off the hook, right? And I'm like, all right, that's cool. And then finally, later in the night, Annie comes up to me. She's all bouncing. She's, you know, she's glowing. She's, it's her wedding, right? And she comes up to me. She's all sweaty because that girl's a dancing machine, like, on the floor. It was, she, it was her wedding, right? She was going crazy. And she said, Josh, today, three different couples told me, I am definitely going to your church as a result of hearing their testimony built into the wedding message. And so we're building the parkway, but we're also building in to Southie and to all the neighborhoods in between. You see how that works? See how it works? A plurality of people scattered throughout the city on a singular mission. That's how it's going to work. Now, a huge piece of my master's degree on top of theology was studying church ministries. That was kind of an emphasis uh, for me. And here's what I found that the trend in church growth is this. You start a church, you grow a church, and they grow really fast in the early years, and then they get to the desirable size, whether it's let's stay small or let's get really big, but then they get to this desirable size, and they start to plateau and decline. And here's why. It's because they get to that desirable size, and they say, we've got it, this is, this is great, it's comfortable, it's family, it's good. Let's create loads and loads and loads of ministries that will cater to us, and maybe they're, they're, they're ministries that are great things, but we do these ministries, and what ends up happening is we busy people up and keep them from ministering in the place where they're most effective, and that is their neighborhood. Because they're too busy coming to church and doing this and doing that, and you're most effective in your neighborhood because you already have established relationships there. So if you're not sure where your ministry assignment is, here it is. It's your neighborhood. Whether it's Southie or Westie or Razi or JP, it's your neighborhood. That's your assignment. One of the sweetest people in our church is a lady named Krista. Some of you guys know her well. Born and raised and still lives on the same block in Roslindale. She's baptized this past Easter Sunday right here. And her ministry, as she sees it, I mean, she's involved in all kinds of things in the church, but her real ministry, as she sees it, she's passionate, she can't stop talking to me about it all the time, is her neighborhood, specifically her block. That's her, her ministry. So Christmas Eve, her and her daughter uh, bake a lot of pastries and goods this Christmas Eve together. And they said, our, our thinking was we were going to go and put them on all the doors 
around our block and have a little scripture attached to the pastries in a bag and just kind of let people know we love them, we care about them. They, just, they have a heart for their neighborhood. And so they did that. And they went around. She said it, Christmas Eve got crazy, so we didn't get to do it till Christmas morning. But because it was Christmas morning, we didn't want to knock on doors because it's Christmas morning and people are doing family things. So we went around the neighborhood and just put them on the stoop, put them on the stoop, put them on the stoop. And we get to this one family that she's been praying about really close with. She said, we're close enough that I could knock. I saw the car out front, so I can knock on the door Christmas morning. I knocked, nothing, nobody answered. But then I hear rustling around in the apartment. I said, what's going on? I knocked, come on, I'm right here. Nothing. She said, well, maybe it's something, I don't know. I'll, I'll go. She went around the block, delivered more pastries with her daughter, trying to show the love of Jesus to her neighbors. She comes back around, and as she comes back around, she sees the son of this family run out of the car. She says, hey. He ignored her completely, jumps in the family car, squeals off. She says, that was strange. He would typically talk to her. She goes to a party a week later and shares a story. And they say, yeah, it's kind of crazy. But uh, the family was out at a family Christmas gathering. The son got really upset in a fight with the family and left. Went back to the house had poured gasoline all over the house and on himself. And as he was about to light a match, guess who knocks on the door? Krista and her daughter. What's the plans? God is moving. God is moving. It's people who say, this is my ministry. My neighborhood is my ministry. My university is my ministry. My team is my ministry. My workplace is my ministry. My mom's group is my ministry. This is my gate. And we adopt our gates and we work out from there until the walls connect and we build a healthy, vibrant, spiritual ecosystem for Boston. That's how it, that's how it works. Notice Nehemiah chapter 323. Skip ahead to 323. Nehemiah had assigned people to their neighborhoods. And it says, And after them, Benjamin... And Hashub repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, the son of Anani, repaired beside his own house. So these guys are building where? Beside their houses. And that's what we're asking you to do, is to build beside your houses. You are our ministry to JP. You are our ministry to Bentley University. You are our ministry into Cambridge. You are our ministry into Brookline. It's you. It's not going to be some fancy schmancy strategy. It's you leave. That's the best thing we can do is get out of here. Go home and do it. And build beside your own house. And so today is Group Connect Sunday. It's a huge piece of who we are as a, as a church and you can and I believe should become a part of a connection group if at all possible. I know there are some circumstances. We can get creative. But lock arms with other people who are also builders in your neighborhood. It's what we call the union. <laughs> right? And get together with your workers, teams of builders. And consider your neighborhood your ministry. That's your assignment. Build a faith community for Boston. A plural people scattered through the city, united for a singular mission. Now, where do we start? Here's where we start. We start by getting to know our neighbors. The fall is an amazing time 
to get to know your neighbors. A lot of good opportunities to throw some parties. Guess what? The Red Sox are in the playoffs. Yes. Game day, right? It's going to be a lot of good Pats games. We got rid of Tebow, so we're good now. Just kidding. We love, we love that guy. We love that guy. Game day, host some parties. Everybody's looking for something to do on Halloween. All you, I know you want to dress up. I know you feel like you're too You want to dress up. So let's have a, have a party. Do what you got to do. Get to know your neighbors. And then at the appropriate time, tell your story. A lot of times we make it so big that we got to sit them down and walk them through this long acronym and get everything theologically perfect. Just tell your story. Here's who I am. Here's what I'm excited about. Here's what I do on my weekends. And you tell your story. It was an exciting time for this team of builders. We're seeing walls and gates start to rise up. It's an exciting time for Charles River Church. We're seeing walls and gates start to rise up all throughout our city. God has given a strategic influence all throughout our city. We have people scattered all throughout our city. And much like the house that we built in, in Central Mass, the walls are going up and it just gets exciting and momentum starts to get rolling. And, and I'm telling you, things are exciting around here. And I would just say this, the hand of God is upon us. It's upon us. And so let's, let's move. Now here's how we're going to close. We're going to close by reading chapter 3. And some of you are thinking, well, Josh, they didn't teach you that in preaching class, did they? Hey, close it by reading the phone book. It's going to be awesome. They're just going to, they're going to go home fired up. We're going to read chapter 3 to close. And maybe you've read ahead and you said, man, that is like, yeah, that's like reading the, the phone book. And what many preachers do is they just skip it all together. They say, that is insane. I can't even pronounce that name. Let's just skip it. And there are numerous chapters in the scripture like this, aren't there? Lots of chapters are like, oh my goodness, I just got stuck in numbers. It was impossible. Right? Lists of names and places. 2 Timothy chapter 3.16, what does it say? It says, all scripture. Give me that first word again. All. All scripture is breathed out by God and is useful. And so that means this is useful. Even if you can't pronounce the name, it's useful. And so here's how we read these passages of Scripture like this, these lists. First of all, we read them, and here's what it tells us. That God cares about the details. God cares about the details. He cares about you, specifically you, your name, and your ministry situation, and your tough neighbor who just so standoffish to you, and, and, and your friend on the other side who you talk about the Lord with, but just... Just, they think you're an imbecile, like you believe in unicorns because you believe in Jesus, right? And, and God knows the details and God cares about the details, right? It also can remind us of just the historicity of the scriptures when you read through lists like this. Like, listen, if I was going to make up a religion, I certainly would not put lists of names and dates and places in there. That makes it the probability of you being contradicted very high. There are names and dates and places in here. It's God's way of saying, go check the history books. It lines up. There's no contradictions. It's not vague. Check the cross-references. Do your, your, your fact-checking. Historically verifiable. And then the other thing that we can and should do as we read texts like this is we should say, man, these are real victories for real people. These are real victories for real people. I mean, these aren't just like, oh, yay, so-and-so build the wall. I don't care. That was a huge deal for these people. It was huge. Their name, like, it's in the Bible. Man, I, we built the wall. We saw God move. It was phenomenal. You think about 9-11 
Every year, New York City pauses to read the list of names. And we could view it really cold, like, oh my goodness, it's taking forever. No, we all understand the importance of listening to every single name, that every single name is meaningful and important, and there's a family attached to that. It's, it's important to remember. And so as we read the entire chapter, and we fumble over names and sound really goofy, and we mispronounce it, the point still stands that these are real victories for real people and for, for real families. You can insert your, your own name, your own gate, your own neighborhood, your own situation, and you can be encouraged and you can leave invigorated as we read chapter 3, also breathed out by God and useful. Have you ever noticed how when God builds through you, God also builds in you? You know what I mean? Like, when you see victories where God's doing things in your life, he's building through you like building a gate or building into his mission. He builds in you as well. And your faith just starts to grow and stretch with every little victory. And that would happen for these people, and I just pray that that'll happen for us as we read these and we say, yeah, God's doing something, God's doing something. He's building, and he's also doing that in my heart. And so Christians, I pray that this happens today, that your faith would be strengthened and that you would join the mission. And for those of us who have never placed faith in Jesus, I pray that today you would place faith in Jesus, who by his death and burial and resurrection rebuilds the broken places in our own hearts. He comes to restore us to right relationship with God, that he is our hope, our life, our future. And we trust in him. And so I'm going to do this. I'm going to invite the band up just to get themselves ready. I'm also going to invite uh, my three readers up here, and we're going to read the chapter 3. And so if you would, look along with us in your Bible at chapter 3, and we're going to read it. Insert your name. Let your faith be strengthened in this. And then we're going to sing about our great God. Chapter 3, verse 1. 